For Cybercrime Radio, I'm Heather Engel. Today I'm talking with Jesse McGraw, a hacker also known as Ghost Exodus and the former leader of the Electronic Tribulation Army. Jesse was accused of and pleaded guilty to computer tampering charges after putting malware on a dozen machines at a Texas clinic and installing a remote access program on the Windows-controlled HVAC system. Jesse served nine years in prison and is the subject of a new documentary on his life as a hacker. Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'd like to start by asking you how you got started as a hacker. What sparked your interest and your abilities? So... It's important to know that I was raised under the proverbial rock, okay? So I didn't actually have access to computers. I didn't have knowledge of or even any type of access to, you know, current technology. It was just the way I was raised by my adopted family. So to make a long story short, when I first found out what a computer could do, let's just say like it it completely baffled me. I kind of started late in experimenting with technology, even being introduced to it. So for me, the computer, the internet, what have you, it opened up the doors knowing that you could manipulate and you could bend technology to do extraordinary things that most people, most users wasn't aware of. And so in 1998, I had one friend in high school, okay? And I seen him hacking on one of our computer systems in my math class, seeing what he was doing kind of like opened my eyes to further possibilities than just using it for surfing the internet and playing games. So it was around that time I began to delve into the world of hacking and, you know, reading the different forum boards for hacking, and hacking tools, getting my hands on books, literature, all types of just information. And the more I devoured this information, the more my eyes opened and it inspired me on a journey to exploring hacking. And I mean, the rest is history. So when you started planning the clinic hack, what was your intention and what was going through your mind? That is quite a leapfrog through time. So there is a lot of backstory. Like most things, nothing is ever just clear cut. There was a whole lot of circumstances that were unfolding at this time most of which I haven't really had much liberty to talk about because the backstory is important, but a lot of people aren't really interested in it. So we were at war with Anonymous and also with certain bad actors who were trying to get me arrested, trying to frame me. Ultimately, I ended up committing the crimes myself. I didn't need anyone to frame me. But in a nutshell, culminating all the things that were coming at us and coming at me personally, I took the law into my own hands, not you know finding any redress for my grievances with the FBI. So I ended up as an insider threat and gained access to 14 different computer systems housed at the Corral Clinic in Dallas, in which case I used them to launch a distributed denial of service attack against my rivals at the time in an effort to try to prevent them from accessing the internet. I mean, obviously that's what it's for. But it was just like a last-ditch effort to send a powerful message to basically leave me and leave my group in peace. And this was after I had tried to report these incidents to the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center, IC3.gov, and wasn't able to make any type of connection with someone to you know, inquire about my complaint. 
in a nutshell, these people were not just common garden variety cyber bullies. These were people who were actively social engineering local law enforcement to try to find ways to get me arrested or making death threats against my family, things that I no longer had taken as juvenile posturing. And plus, you know, I had a newborn child and I was married, so I had to look out for the protection of my family, not knowing if these threats were realistic or if they were, you know, just imagined. So it pretty much came unraveled once I ended up making this video. The documentary is called How Hacking Ruined My Life, The Ghost Exodus Story. What made you decide to tell your story and what's the message that you hope viewers will take from it? Well, all of this began so long ago. Even the crime itself is well over almost 15 years old by now. I have invested so much energy and burned so many bridges just to pursue hacking. Hacking for me, though, it was a way to liberate myself because at the time I was a victim of a religious cult. This is something that I talk about in brief on Darknet Diaries. It was a way for me to try to explore who I was while at the same time shaking off my chains, using hacktivism to try to liberate others. But the thing is, is that we end up taking certain liberties by assuming the role of a judge, jury, and executioner, you know, in our roles as hacktivists. And ultimately, we can easily become like our abusers. And I don't know, it's just, I see a lot of good people who have stepped into the hacktivism landscape. And over the years, they become more and more disconnected from their peers. They're more eager to justify attacks that are out of scope. And then, you know, it evolves into swatting and trying to do hits and threaten to murder people. I see like this moral compass begin to wane until they become like the sociopath. And I don't know, it's just hacking ruined my life because I became so consumed by it that I don't know, it's just I was neglecting real life. And, you know, sitting for, you know, actually what amounted to over a decade in federal prison and looking back at my life and in times when my life was being threatened, like just having to survive in these high intensity, violent environments. I didn't wish that I had spent more time on the internet. I actually wished I had lived life looking through bars and not being able to feel the wind on my face. I wasn't thinking about the internet at that time. I was thinking about why I hadn't gone out to see the world or why I hadn't started a business or pursued real career goals. Looking through you know, the bars of my prison, I realized that, you know, hacking isn't life. Like, it's just this thing that we do because we're addicted to it. It's like, we don't know what to do with our lives without the internet. So, you know, in retrospect, looking back, yeah, like, if you were to clock how many hours I have spent on the internet since 1998, I could really honestly say I haven't really lived. And you don't even think about these things until your life is about to be taken from you by force. And so that's the reason why, you know, I say the hacking ruined my life, like even more so because I wasn't there to raise my child. Like my daughter is probably 16 now and I haven't spoken to her in years. I'm estranged from my ex-wife. Like we don't speak anymore. You know, my siblings grew up and had their own lives. So everyone else was growing, evolving. Society was changing. I wasn't there during any of these big sociological slash technological quantum leaps that we did from 2009 to 2017. Like I wasn't there when, you know, the Occupy movement happened, when, you know, WikiLeaks kicked off. I wasn't there. I was reading about it from a cell. 
You know, I wasn't there when my dad died when I was in solitary confinement. So, you know, when you culminate all these things, there's all these little points where things could have gone better, but I had chosen this path and I chose it with such conviction because I believed what I was doing was right. I mean, the lies we tell ourselves, right? So I got out of prison and to try to redeem what I had lost through years of incarceration, you know, I tried to shape hacktivist groups now because to be honest with you, I don't really have any job history. So I'm a freelance writer for Cyber News. Like obviously what I do is internet-based because I'm most familiar with the internet. I do cybersecurity research, threat intelligence, and yes, I guide hacktivist groups in an ethos to try to mitigate unethical sabotage and to create a culture to try to protect companies that are in the crosshairs of other hacktivists who are attacking you know, people and companies, schools that are completely out of scope. So it's just my way of giving back without actually committing crimes. Yeah, that's a pretty powerful message, too, to hear you talk about all the things that you wish you had done differently. As you look towards the future, do you see yourself getting back into doing some sort of computer security? Do you think you'll continue doing what you're doing now? What are some of the goals that you have going forward? Well, the foremost goal that I have outside of writing is op child safety. This is something that I have a team, I've built a team to explore new areas in combating sexual, you know, child exploitation and fighting against the online predators, which is an epidemic. One of the big components of hacktivism, especially in Anonymous, is op child safety, is this fight and quest to try to protect children and unmask, de-anonymize these bad actors, right? So the problem is a lot of these groups, they're young, they're young people. They don't really know how to help, but they have the eagerness, the want to, the desire to help, but they end up causing more harm than good. For example, let's say there's a website on the ClearNet, right? And there are groups that identify it. And of course, we want the offending content removed, but what ends up happening is people will blast it with a botnet attack and ultimately destroy evidence and announce to the bad actors who are operating these platforms that they are being scrutinized and then they end up moving to different hosts and changing domain names outside of our control, outside of our knowledge. And they end up destroying key evidence that could otherwise be used to prosecute these people and potentially rescue victims that are involved. So we try to shape this landscape with rules and try to explore prevention methods through education instead of just trying to tackle these bad actors on a case-by-case -case basis. Like it's such an epidemic, there's no winning unless we try through prevention education. So awareness is a big deal. Like we're trying to educate parents. We're still creating new content for that campaign. For example, which apps are safe for kids? Like Roblox has been known to attract bad actors only because a lot of these games allow adults to message children and some of them don't. Obviously, apps that don't allow adults to message children or any type of messaging function is much safer. But we also need parents to be more proactive in monitoring their children's online activities. And so we try to do this through education. And I also am allowed a lot of liberty writing for Cyber News to use it as a platform to broadcast this message to educate other people and try to, you know, reduce the number of victims through awareness instead of trying to insulate them from knowing what a bad actor is. So yes, op child safety is the foremost thing that I'm striving for right now with our team. I'm the director of Winterstorm, which is an op child safety exclusive group. And together, like we have created this environment to help influence and shape 
and tried to mold other hacktivist groups to be more responsible, especially when handling evidence that can be used in the court of law. So yeah, that's just one of the things, you know, another thing is I'm hoping to publish my autobiography this year. It's in the final stages of editing and just speaking. I want to speak at DEF CON this year. So once the call for papers opens up, I'm going to be submitting a talk about child safety. So let's hope for that. Well, we appreciate you sharing your story with us. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I always try to tell these young hackers, you know, hack responsibly. My story is like the epitome of the worst case scenario. And so I want them to try to learn from my mistakes so that they can not find themselves on the wrong side of the law. The problem is, is I mean, hackers are going to hack. There's nothing you can really do to stop that. But what their ambitions lie on, I mean, yeah, you can act as a deterrent. And that's one of the things I try to advocate for. Whenever we see these young hacktivists wanting to attack something that could jeopardize public health and safety, such as, you know, Modbus devices associated with power stations, we want to try to keep them from doing that and mitigate those attacks by getting in front of them and try to warn these targets that they're about to be sabotaged by hackers, try to help steer them away from that cyber attack if possible, if they will let us. So it's like hack responsibly, like our actions do carry heavy consequences. And just because we're sitting at a computer screen, you know, we're emotionally detached from the receiving end of that attack. It doesn't mean that there's not a victim. So we really want to start seeing some righteous hacks, something smarter, something that isn't going to jeopardize public health and safety, no blowing up power stations. That's something that we were contending with later last year. And just think about consequences. The consequences can be very huge. I mean, it cost me everything. I am happy where I am today, but to get to this point, I was on my knees in the most agonizing trajectory through life as everything I ever loved was chipped away. So, you know, being mindful of your actions, this this is important. Like, it's everything. It really is. Jesse, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. For Cybercrime Magazine, I'm Heather Engel. For more of our media, visit our website at cybersecurityventures.com.